You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. What's up, Revolution? That's what I'm talking about. Now, something has just been brought to my attention. Um, I don't know why we have cake back by the coffee, but some geniuses in here put it in cups. A cupcake. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's so, so good. Cooley just showed me. Steve told me. Steve is the king of stupid puns, if you don't know him. Not only is he an elder and a good guitar player, but he's also really annoying. Um, so, <laughs> from the man that lives with, with Steve, that's good. Um, so, no, I'm glad you guys are here. I uh, see a couple of, of new faces. I'm super stoked. And the people who are returning for the umpteenth or millionth time, perhaps. I'm glad you're here as well. Um, let's, just, let's just roll into this. Who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? This is we're glad you asked because we're going to be talking about that a lot. Um, all right, this is a question that I love to ask people. Um, I love because if you ever want to make anyone feel uncomfortable, sometimes even if they're Christians, just roll up to someone. Hey, man, question: Who do you think Jesus of Nazareth is? Uh, people just get super uncomfortable. But I, I like asking this question whenever I'm on campus at Shawnee State. Uh, whenever I'm at work with coworkers or just people coming in to buy a pack of smokes or whatever, just like to ask them that at the pub, at the coffee shop, wherever. Um, and I've noticed this. You will get, even in Soda County, um, you will get a lot of different responses from different people, right? Um, the first response that I get, which is my favorite, and I mean that sarcastically, is like white American, like suburban Jesus, right? Anyone else ever get that one? Usually it's the paintings you saw growing up in church, like super white Jesus. Um, that always makes me laugh. But whenever I say like white American suburban Jesus, it's, it's people answer you with this depiction of Jesus Christ as if he's like a, for certain would vote like a straight Republican ticket and be like, a, like an advocate of prohibition and uh, like wants you to achieve your dreams, right? Uh, probably super big smile all the time, never got very serious, wants you to do you. Um, that's white American Jesus. That's an answer that I get a lot. Um, very patriotic. Um, another one that I get is social justice Jesus, which like think like Bernie Sanders with like a big beard and long hair, right? Like I get that one a lot, um, that Jesus would be down with every single government kind of uh, help program, um, that he's all about helping the poor, which uh, Jesus was all about that. I, I don't deny that at all, but like a caricature of that, that like that's all he was about was just loving other people and, um, and helping the poor and, and giving your money away, which again, these are aspects of Jesus. Um, another one is this, and it's the one, and maybe I detest it the most, is hippie Jesus. Um, and I know you guys probably get bored of hearing me talk about that, but hippie Jesus is, um, like think like Californian Jesus, Birkenstocks, offering really good advice, but is super chill, really cool with like your sin and doesn't want you to change. And like, nah, bro, it's all right. Um, probably would move to Colorado. Um, some of you get that joke, some of you don't. Um, and then there's like angry Jesus, which kind of sounds weird. Um, but like a lot of people think, you know, that Jesus is just upset with them all the time because they can't seem to get everything right. So why listen to him? Because he's always mad at me. Um, and then there's delusional Jesus, which I hear from atheists a lot. They're like, he was just this insane Jew in the first century. 
that like was delusional about his divinity. He claimed to be God, which is why you can't trust him because he was a nutcase. And then there's confused Jesus that you hear from agnostics. They're like, I think he was a pretty good guy, but maybe he just read a little bit too much into the Old Testament and thought that, you know, he was the Messiah, but he was just a little bit confused about that. Um, but all that to say, rarely do I hear a response that is accurate. Right? I might hear fragments of the truth, but rarely do I hear a fully accurate response, even whenever I ask Christians who Jesus is. Right? I'll, seriously, I'll ask believers, people who profess that faith in Jesus, and I'll still get some of those kinds of answers. Maybe not that bad. I'm, I'm, again, I'm making a caricature of those things. Um, but I'll get some piece of that. Um, and I said all that to say this. I think a lot of the time we don't really seem to view Jesus the way that the Bible, God's Word... <laughs> Right? We don't tend to view Jesus the way that the Bible portrays him. Um, what we'll do often, again, my big one right now, my big pet peeve is social justice Jesus. Again, Bernie Sanders with a big beard. Um, is we'll take the vastness of who Jesus is and the complexity of who he is and, and, and the depth and all the things that he taught. And then we'll try to condense it down into one thing. So what people will do is they'll say, for all the things that Jesus taught, I just want to take him calling us to help the poor, calling us to be generous with our money, and say, that's who Jesus is. He's that guy and nothing else. Right? I think that we tend to do that. Um, and generally, I see believers do that, um, but with this one aspect. I see believers viewing Jesus primarily as Savior. Right? Now, before you go off on me and think, what, are you saying Jesus isn't Savior? I'm um, not doing that. Um, that view is biblical, and thank God for that, that I get that answer from people sometimes. Um, that is one of the primary roles of Jesus. That is never to be glazed over because our only hope for salvation is that Jesus is Savior. Our only hope in suffering is that Jesus is Savior and will rescue us out of the pain. Right. So I'm not downplaying that at all. But I don't hear people often talk about how Jesus is Lord. Right? I never hardly hear people talk that Jesus is Lord of everything. That he is a sovereign king who is in control and has full rights to everything. Um, I've noticed the people that I do hear about that a lot of the times. Anyone listen to like old preachers like on podcasts and stuff? It's always like the old theologians and old Christians that call him the Lord Jesus. Isn't it? Like, we don't hear that. Like, that is kind of like, I remember whenever I first started listening to some old guys like uh, John MacArthur. If you guys are into him, if you're not, look him up. Um, John MacArthur calls him the, our Lord Jesus Christ all the time. And that kind of struck me as odd. Um, but this view of the Lord Jesus is one that we really need to recover. Right? Like, we really need to recover. I think this is something that, that John Wesley, uh, founder of the Methodist movement, he hit on a lot. Jesus is Lord. He, he's the one who calls the shots in our lives. We are to, to render holiness unto Jesus, to live in a way that he would want us to live, um, instead of doing what we want to do all the time. Um, this view is something that we have to recover. It's vital to our faith, because this view of Jesus as Lord is going to change how we live completely. Right, follow me on this. If Jesus is Lord, then we are bound to obey his commands. If he is king of everything, we have an obligation to obey him. right? Because if he's king, then we're subjects, and you always do what the king says. If he is just merely, like only, our savior, or any of those other kinds of Jesuses that we talked about, or Jesus, if you want to pluralize that, I don't know how you do that. Um, yeah, stupid jokes. Um, but if Jesus is, is merely our savior or anything else, um, then what we can do is we can take his commands 
and we can skirt around his words and ignore him for the sake of convenience if we don't view him as Lord. But the scriptures teach us that Jesus Christ is the Christ. It's not a last name, just so you guys know. Like, it wasn't like Joseph Christ and Mary Christ and Jesus Christ, right? He was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord of all things. And He is God in the flesh. This is what the Bible teaches us. And because of that, He is to be taken deadly serious in all the things that He says. Deadly serious. Right? Whether they are explicit commands, principles for us to live by, these big overarching concepts whether it's the theology that he taught, what we're supposed to believe about God and about ourselves, whatever it is, we're to believe, we're to follow, we're to submit to because he is above all of us. He is Lord. And truthfully, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever here, it doesn't really matter. Jesus is still Lord. Whether you acknowledge him as Lord is another matter, but he's still Lord. He's still above all and he's still deserving of our submission. Which brings us actually to our text this evening. Um, We're trucking through the Gospel of Luke. We're in Luke chapter 22 this evening. And we are going to be taking a look at Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin. Uh, It's a Jewish court. If you guys didn't know, you guys are going to learn some fun facts about the Sanhedrin here in just a minute. Um, Big highest court in Jerusalem. Think like we have the Supreme Court. There would be like smaller Jewish courts in every town. uh, Bigger courts depending on the size of the town. And then there's the big 71-member Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. Right? So Jesus is standing before the big dog court um, because he was arrested in Jerusalem. And here we're going to see Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the King, the Lord Jesus, treated as if he is nothing. We're going to see him treated as if he's someone to be mocked. As if he's someone to be ignored. As if he's someone to be beaten. But then as we see that and we kind of unpack that, we're going to see Jesus give us a warning. Or a warning if you're an unbeliever, um, a reminder if you're here and you're a Christian as to who he really is. Um, And what I really hope that what I've been praying for for the last few days is that we would truly begin to recognize Jesus as the sovereign, all-powerful king that he is. That he has all authority, all power, all dominion forever over all things, including our lives. And I hope that as we see that, that we would, that our, that our hearts, rather, would, would be changed to reflect on Him in this way daily so that our lives would be changed and we would gladly begin to submit to His reign over us. Right? Jesus is a kind, loving, compassionate, good, gracious, forgiving King, but He is a King nonetheless. We have to recover that. So let's, let's hit it. Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through 71. If you're here and you're new, there are blue Bibles in the backs of those pews. Take one home with you. That is our gift to you. We want you to have that. But it's also going to be up here on the projector behind me if you don't feel like flipping there right now. But Luke chapter 22, verses 66 through 71. Luke writes this. At daybreak, all the elders of the people assembled, including the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, Jesus was led before this high council, or in Greek, the uh, Sanhedrin. Um, He was led before this high council, and they said, Tell us, are you the Messiah? But he replied, If I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you a question, you won't answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. 
And they all shouted, So are you claiming to be the Son of God? And he replied, You say that I am. Why do we need other witnesses, they said. We ourselves heard him say it. Just a, a quick little thing. Him saying, You say that I am. That's a, that's a, a way to affirm, Yes. Other translations say, you rightly say that I am. Or the, the NASB, the NASB, actually just says, yes, I am. <laughs> right? I don't know why that they would make it that hard. Um, you say that I am. I always used to think, is he trying to like skirt around saying that he's the Messiah? And then I studied it, so I don't want you guys to get the wrong idea. He is blatantly saying, yes, I am claiming to be the Son of God. Um, but to get some context, I just want to clear that up, because if you're like me, small stuff like that, well, like, just my mind is gone for the rest of the time that I'm here. <laughs> um, but context. Right, to give you guys a little bit of background, we've been leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, right? which, which uh, Dustin Cooley is actually going to be preaching next week. He's going to be hitting that up. Um, but we've been leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, and we're at the, the last step, really, um, at least that we're going to be looking at. We're at the last step, and we're looking at Jesus' trial, like I said earlier. Now, we've seen Jesus predict his death multiple times throughout his ministry. We've seen him proclaim his coming crucifixion in the, in the institution of the Last Supper or communion, where his body is going to be broken for us or in our place, that his blood is going to be poured out in our place, and this is going to put us at peace with God if we would have faith in him. We've seen Jesus give his final teachings, telling us to expect hostility, but to persevere by prayer. Um, We've we've seen, we we didn't get to go into this, but Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. He's been arrested by by the Jewish people, and he's been denied by Peter. And now he stands before the Jewish court. Again, he stands before the Sanhedrin. Now, a little bit... If you guys are into history, I hope you are, because I have a microphone and you're going to listen. Uh, the Sanhedrin uh, it was, again, the, the, the highest court that you could possibly have in Israel, the one in Jerusalem was. Um, now, the Sanhedrin was set up to be a phenomenal court system, right? Like, I was, I was studying, like, how, like, their legal proceedings, and I'm just going to give you guys a few, but Google it. Like, buy a book on it. It's super cool. It would actually be better a lot of the times, maybe, if our court system was ran like the Sanhedrin in some regards. Um, but, like I said, it was set up to be a great court system, and it usually was, with the exception of the trial of Jesus Christ. Um, here are some things that, that you would have to do for the, that the Sanhedrin had for legal proceedings. Um, the, the first one was this. Your trial had to be during the day. right? It had to be public. Um, they would actually have it in a part of the temple called the Hall of Hewn Stone. Right? It sounded like something out of like, uh, like Lord of the Rings or something. I just wanted to bring that to your attention. <laughs> right? So they, they would meet in this hall. It was public. If you were a Jew, you could go. Um, daytime, again, nothing's to be done in secret at all. Actually, they, they took this so seriously that if you, if you wanted to have a trial, you had to come in the very, very early morning. You actually couldn't start in the afternoon because they wanted to make sure they had enough time to hear all evidence, all witnesses. They took this really important, again, meant to be public. Um, another one was the accused, like our court system, the accused must have a defense. Right? The, the defendant must have someone to defend them. They could opt out and, and choose to defend themselves, or they could have a lawyer of sorts. But they must present some kind of defense. Um, another one was witnesses were not allowed to contradict. Right? Honesty is key. Actually, if you were an accuser and you said that you witnessed someone commit a crime and then they found out you were lying... Whatever the punishment would have been for that person, you have to suffer. Right? Not like you get a couple of years for perjury or anything, but like if you, can, if you were accusing someone of murder, they would kill you if they found out you were lying about it. 
right? Super good way, I might add, to make sure people don't lie uh, on the witness stand. I could be cool with that. I don't know about you guys. Um, Anyway, uh, but the witnesses aren't allowed to contradict. Um, Another one, defendants are not allowed to incriminate themselves. All right, that was big for the Sanhedrin. The witnesses aren't allowed to incriminate themselves. You couldn't ask them a direct question about whether or not they did it because that didn't matter. You still had to have witnesses, right? So you couldn't start questioning them. You had to bring an accusation first. So they couldn't incriminate themselves. And then this, and this was maybe the coolest, capital punishments, right, the death penalty. You had to wait a full day before you could execute somebody, right? So what they would do is you would have, uh, the, the ruling would happen today, whether we decided you were guilty or innocent, and you had to have uh, not just the one person over, but like a, at least one by a couple for a conviction. Um, and if we decided you were guilty today, we have to wait all day tomorrow, where the, the people in the Sanhedrin will be praying and fasting and reconsidering their vote. And then on the third day, um, they could either choose to, I'm sorry, they could choose to take their vote back about being guilty and try to render that person innocent. But if you had already voted them innocent, you couldn't change it to guilty. This was set up to be an incredibly merciful court system where if someone got convicted, they were truly guilty. Right? They would actually err on the side of mercy and let a guilty man go free before they would punish um, an innocent man. But on the third day, they would execute someone after waiting and fasting and praying and hearing more evidence if there was any more. And again, there were many other measures to ensure justice and mercy. Now, I said all this to, to say this. By the time that our text occurs, Jesus' daytime trial, Jesus had already had an illegal private trial. The Gospel of Mark, if you want to go back, it might be chapter 14. I'm blanking right now. But if you want to read about it, read the Gospel of Mark. He already had an illegal private trial. It was at night. Again, it was just Jesus. The public wasn't allowed in. And it was held not in the temple, but it was held in Annas. Um, he was one of the high priests, or um, kind of a high priest. It's confusing. I'll talk to you about it later if you want to know. And then Caiaphas, the acting high priest. It, uh, he had two kind of trials in their homes, actually. So it's incredibly private. In the middle of the night, um, Jesus was not allowed to give a defense whatsoever. Um, they brought an accusation against him, sure, uh, but the people who were trying to corroborate that accusation couldn't keep their story straight and kept lying, and they were bribed into lying by the Sanhedrin, right? And then we see in our text this evening that we just read as well, Jesus is asked multiple times to incriminate himself. Are you saying you're the Son of God? He's asked multiple times to incriminate himself. And then after they give him a guilty ruling, Jesus is killed hours later. For the trial of Jesus Christ, the Sanhedrin broke every procedural law that they had. Right? It's the only way to convict the sinless, innocent Son of God. is to chuck out all justice that you could possibly have. Right? They wrongly sat in judgment over Jesus. They had no right. He had done no wrong. They had no right to say that he had ever done anything bad. That he had ever said anything that wasn't true or good. They had no evidence. Now I want you to keep that in mind. And I want you to keep this in mind, too. The only way that they could get an execution of Jesus, the only way they could get a conviction, rather, was to get Jesus to incriminate himself in front of people to be witnesses. And he did it. I want you to remember that because we're going to return to that at the end. Jesus incriminated himself because he desired to save unworthy sinners. He did it because he wanted to display his love for us. 
And also bear this in mind, Jesus incriminated himself. This is proof that he is in control of this whole situation. He says, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. And I have the authority to take it back up again. No one takes this from me. I'll incriminate myself because I'm going to the cross because I will save my people. Nothing was going to keep him from the cross. He was in control. So all that to say this, that Sanhedrin was completely corrupt. Right? Shady dealings, right? Caiaphas, he was a snake, just a piece of trash. Um, That was the high priest. Um, Illegal proceedings with this trial of Jesus. These 71 men on the Sanhedrin were just arrogant. Arrogant that they would stand before the Son of God and try to sit in judgment of him. They were full of pride. They thought that they wielded all power. And they hated Christ. They hated Jesus with a passion. But they were very powerful on earth. Um, something that I kept pointing out in my study, in my notes, is that it's so ironic that Sanhedrin was a court, but that they sat in judgment over God. They sat in judgment over God. This is a big theme we're going to flesh out. But again, they act as if they held all power, that they were the ones in control of Jesus' fate, that they would decide whether or not what Jesus says was good or blasphemous, whether they should submit to him and obey or whether they should ignore him, which is just a false belief that they wielded that kind of authority over Christ. So, but what did they do? Because of that false belief, they questioned Jesus. They questioned him. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, I've told you that I am. If I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you any questions, meaning if I ask you questions that would lead you, right? If you answered honestly, it would lead you to the truth that I am the Messiah. If I ask you questions, you won't answer. Right? We saw that in the temple a couple of months ago. Right? They had this complete unbelief. They questioned everything Jesus said. But they had always been like this. Um, you know, they never believed Jesus' claims to be Messiah all throughout his ministry. They never believed his claims to divinity, none of it. Um, they, they, they just absolutely refused to trust in Christ. They refused to believe in Christ. They, repu- they refused to repent of their sin of rejecting him. And they refused ultimately to submit to Jesus. And that's because they fully believed that they didn't need Christ. That's what led to their opposition of Jesus, is they were completely convinced that they didn't need him. They fully believed that they, didn't, that they didn't need someone to be a substitute in their place to suffer for the wrongs that they've done. They believed that they would make themselves righteous in God's sight, that they could show their works to God and say, look how good of a person that I was. And it's impossible, side note, it's impossible to make yourself righteous in God's eyes. You're a sinner. You're worse than trash. God hates sin. The Bible says he punishes the wicked and that we have no righteousness in us at all. So it is only by faith in Christ that we could possibly be saved. Someone to take our sin from us and then give us his righteousness to be judged by. Only the sinless winner into heaven. And that's why we get Jesus' sinless righteousness given to us if we put our faith in him. Right? God can't be around sin, so we must have a righteousness that doesn't belong to us. Right? But you know, Thinking about the Sanhedrin, it's really easy, and I say this a lot, it's really easy to go, oh, those guys, and like puff your chest out, I wouldn't have done that to Jesus. Yeah, you would have. Um, we're just going to be completely honest, right? Whenever we read, and I, and I can't stress this enough, whenever you read the Bible, um, and you read about the bad guys, right, like Pharaoh, or uh, whenever the Israelites are screwing up in the book of Judges, like the men's small group is looking through, um, whenever you read about the bad guys, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, whatever, we need to really look for ourselves in them. You need to look for yourself in them because we are always the bad guy. 
We're always the sinner. Only God is ever the Savior. All throughout the Bible, whether we're looking at Moses or whether Joshua or any of these like super like men of faith, those are all foreshadowings of Jesus. Jesus is the only righteous one. We're always the bad guy. Right? So that makes me want to ask this question. How are you like the Sanhedrin? How are we just like the Sanhedrin here? Because that's where we really need to be going into our thinking if we're going to view this text properly. How am I like the bad guys? How am I the bad guy? Um, just cutting to the quick, because I've been called crass before. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, you are exactly like the Sanhedrin. There's not an ounce of difference at all if you're not a Christian. You are exactly like the Sanhedrin. Christians, don't get comfortable because I'm going after the whole clan next. Um, but if you're an unbeliever, you are exactly like the Sanhedrin. They opposed Jesus. They were enemies of Jesus. They questioned him and his authority. And that's exactly what unbelievers do. Right? The Bible says that if we are not friends of God, then we are at enmity with Him, and we only become friends of God through faith in Christ. So by standing in opposition to Christ and not submitting to His authority, we put ourselves at enmity with God. And it manifests itself in, in these ways. We, we question Jesus. Right? Unbelievers question Jesus in every aspect. What right does Jesus have to say blank? Whatever it is. Tell me how to live. Tell me what I ought to do, what I ought not to do, what I ought to believe. An outright unbelief. I don't believe that he was the son of God. I won't submit to him at all. Right, un- unbelievers won't, and just, again, just staunch opposition. They won't look at the world around them and then see their need for forgiveness. God says that he displays himself in creation, that you know that there's something bigger than you, and you know that you've done wrong, and you know that you're going to have to give an account for the wrong that you've done someday. You know you deserve wrath. But just like the Sanhedrin, they won't seek after God. and They won't seek after forgiveness from God. They reject the only means of forgiveness that they could have. They won't look at Scripture honestly and see its truth. That this speaks to to the human experience on so many different levels that it must be true. Our morality is derived from this. Everything that we are is derived from this book. Honestly, they won't even, if you want to get secular, they won't even look at history, honestly, and see the validity of the resurrection of Jesus. They refuse to believe. They refuse to repent. They refuse to obey the gospel. And really what that's doing, if we deny Christ, if we refuse to put our faith in Christ, we're denying God's promise about Jesus. Saying, I don't believe he's the Christ. I don't believe he atoned for sin. I won't put my faith in him. And unbelievers, and I say this, I understand I'm generalizing, and people say, don't do that. You're trying to make yourself righteous. I hear all the time, what do you think God thinks of you? I think that he thinks I'm a pretty good guy. Why? Because I do this, and I don't do this, and I don't hurt anyone. I pay my taxes, I take care of my kids, I go to my job. You know, I believe in God, right? Which the devil does. So you're officially on the same foot, like footing as Satan. Um, just again, my stack of accomplishments or my stack of things that I abstain from, and that's why I think God views me as pretty good. That's if they believe in God. But again, just like the Sanhedrin. But now to flip the gun on our own tribe, right? Because um, whenever Jesus speaks in the way that he spoke to the Sanhedrin, and we're going to see ourselves as the Sanhedrin, no one gets away from this. right? So buckle up. This is going to be fun. Um, believers, we do this too. 
We absolutely have so many similarities to the Sanhedrin in this text. Like, I took a beating over this uh, on Friday when I was pinning this stuff out. Like, we're, we're similar to the Sanhedrin. There are some marked differences. I won't, I won't deny that. There are definitely differences. Um, but there's a lot of sim- similarities. But some of the differences, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Right, we believe that Jesus was sent to earth to save sinners, to trust in, uh, that, that, that by trusting in Jesus, placing all of our hope, all of our confidence um, in him, we'll be saved. Um, that he came back from the dead, that he is king, that he is savior. Or at least we're acknowledging that with our mouths most of the time. But we're still like the Sanhedrin, right? So there's no high horses in here. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, I don't want you to think that I'm trying to get up on some moral high horse with all the things that I said about unbelievers. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Um, but again, Christians, we, we have no room for high horses whenever we look at unbelievers. And we have no right to pass condemnation on them. But again, I just want to make that clear. But we're still like the Sanhedrin. We, and I mean it like this, we don't always take Jesus' commands and claims to heart, do we? Real quick thing. Anyone sin today? Everyone get your hands up. <laughs> Everyone did. Now, what does that tell me? Everyone, at some point or another today, did not take Jesus' commands seriously. We didn't take his commands to heart, right? Um, think about this. And I see myself do this, and I know that I'm not crazy. So, at least I don't think I am. So, I would imagine all of you guys do this too. We look at the commands of Jesus and then decide if we want to do them or not. Do we not? Day in and day out. He commands this. Like, do I really want to do that? Instead of doing what we ought to do, which is immediate obedience to whatever he has dictated to us because that's what he deserves. Now, whenever we stand and try to figure out, am I going to obey Jesus' commands, whether it's, you know, am I going to be sexually pure? Am I going to be generous with my money? Um, You know, am, am I going to speak kindly to my wife? Am I going to forgive this person for the wrong that they've done? Whatever it is. Whenever we're sitting and debating on whether or not we're actually going to do what Jesus says, And then, God forbid, we actually do the opposite of what he says, or we just ignore him. This is really us sitting in judgment of Jesus, just like the Sanhedrin. They were deciding whether or not they believed he was the Messiah, whether or not he had any authority, whether or not he should be worshipped. And they said no, which is exactly what we do when we disobey. You know, and this sitting in judgment of Jesus and his commands is really our judging whether or not he is God or we are. I heard a theologian say this. I wish I could remember who it was. It may have been Matt Chandler. He's a preacher. Um, Whenever we sin, we are attempting to de-God God. God. We're attempting to knock him off of his throne as king of everything and put ourselves in that throne. I deserve to dictate how I'm going to live. I'm the one who gets to say um, what the authority over my life is, and that authority is going to be me. So we try to de-God God. We try to take his status away and put ourselves up there. That's really what our disobedience is. You know, every instance of unbelief or disobedience is us sitting as false judges over Christ. And actually, I'll say this about believers. It's actually worse out of us because we know who Jesus is. We claim to love him. We claim to have received this amazing grace that we can't fathom. And then we would do this. And then we would reject him as Lord and King. At least unbelievers are being honest. I'll give you that. 
least unbelievers are being honest. You know, I, I say all this because I know everyone does this. Without a doubt, every single person in this room does this. Everyone disobeys Christ. I know that all of us, whether we're believers or unbelievers, we need to put our disobedience to Christ into this perspective. That really we're sitting in judgment over Christ whenever we refuse to obey. And I'll say this too. This is fun. Um, there are, you know, there's the big sins, right? Like I'm saying this sarcastically, I might add, if you're new here. They're like the big sins, like homosexuality, um, uh, Why am I blanking on this? I like murder. Like homosexuality, <laughs> murder, um, you know, um, being promiscuous. Um, like we'll lump in sleeping with someone that you're not married to, right? The, the big external sins, right? I can't believe I blanked on that. This is good. It's going to be on the podcast. Um, right? And we say, well, I got those. So I'm like, I don't do those things, rather. Um, so I'm walking in obedience to Jesus. He is my Lord. But then we have these other things that we call little sins, Right? This is, this is fun. Like speeding. Yeah, pot calling the kettle black here. Like, I admit that. Like, if you saw on Facebook, I totally got a ticket, like, a couple of weeks ago, and that sucked. It cost me $114. Um, that was the justice of the Lord. Uh, right? But seriously, Romans 13 tells us to obey the law. I, I know I'm using a, uh, what seems to us. Does this not show you how much that we don't, like, really appreciate the lordship of Jesus Christ? Romans chapter 13 says to obey the law. And submit to the government. So long as the government is not telling us to do something that violates what Scripture says. And we would laugh at someone doing 51 and a 35. Really. I mean, like, I'm not, I know that sounds, oh, you're just, you know, you're being a legalist here, Dave. No, really, like the Bible says to obey the law. And we laugh at that sin. I sinned. We would laugh at that because it's a little sin. I was rejecting the lordship of Jesus. I was saying, what right does Jesus Christ have to tell me how to drive? How stupid am I? He has all right over everything. Right? Drunkenness. There's another one. What's a big deal? I mean, I was passed out. I was asleep for a few hours. Jesus says, don't. He's king. Walking in unforgiveness towards people. I just don't want to be reconciled with them. Being apathetic towards the spiritual disciplines like prayer and studying scripture, right? Being lazy and not diligently working and not trying to provide and save. Right? Not being generous with the things that we've provided and saved. Just not being kind towards people that we ought to. We call these things little sins and we say, I'm not doing the big ones, so Jesus must be my Lord. But how many small things do we say, no big deal? brush it under the rug, and continue to sit in judgment over what Jesus Christ has told us to do. We are the Sanhedrin. Even in small matters. We push these things down and in doing so, defy the authority of Christ. Which is really us denying His kingship. I said all this to say I hope that whatever it is, whatever it is that your little sin is, or big one, sin is sin. God hates all of it. There is always some dark, unevangelized corner of our hearts that needs to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There's always something. If you can't, if you can't think of anything, think harder. Read the Bible more. 
It's there. The Bible's a mirror that shows us what's wrong with us and what's right with Christ. Compare yourself to Christ. If you can't think of anything that needs to go. We never have any right to sit in judgment over Jesus' authority and command. He is king. So in light of that, Jesus actually gives us a reminder. I know I'm kind of teasing this out a little bit long, but it's good. This is good stuff. Jesus, in response to our attitude towards him, that we would want to sit in judgment over his words, right? Again, in context, he's looking at the Sanhedrin, right? Looking at them and how they're sitting in judgment over him, mocking him and denying his authority, denying his kingship, denying denying his Messiahship, all of this stuff. He's going to give us something that's like a warning and a call to worship at the same time. He looks at the Sanhedrin and he says, But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated in the place of power at God's right hand. What that actually is, if you're not too uh, up to date on your Old Testament, um, we're all kind of guilty of that. Jesus is referencing... Um, one of two different passages or both. Um, I would say both. Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm 110. Right, I'm going to read you a couple of pieces from that. So this is what Jesus is referencing whenever he says, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God in power. Um, Daniel, Daniel's having a vision in this passage. And he says this, As my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient One, that's God. He approached the Ancient One and was led into His presence. And He was giving authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey Him. That word obey also carries the connotation of worship. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Psalm 110 Verse 1 says, the Lord, this is God, says to my Lord, this is King David writing about someone coming in his line that he would call Lord. This is Jesus. This is God the Father talking to Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Meaning until I crush them and put them under you. Sit at my right hand until I do it. So what I see, Jesus, in the midst of them sitting in judgment over him and us sitting in judgment over him, I see him with all of his godly authority and just majesty saying something to this effect. You sit in judgment over me, questioning who I am, ignoring me, refusing to believe that I am who I am, but the time is coming where you will no longer question who I am. Because you will see me at the right hand of God in power and know who I am. You will not ask any questions at this time. You won't question me and my authority anymore. But I will ask you questions. Why didn't you believe? Why didn't you obey? Why didn't you seek me? Why did you reject me? And my father will crush My Father will cast into hell all of my enemies, all unbelievers who rejected my authority, and He will make them my footstool. This is not a timid, weak Jesus just wanting us to accept Him and appreciate Him. This is not a timid and weak Jesus in the face of His oppressors and His enemies. This is the statement of a king. This is a regal declaration. 
Jesus is affirming that after his death and resurrection, he will be vindicated and exalted. He will be given complete sovereign control, all authority and all honor that everyone should obey and worship him. We do not view Jesus in this light enough. Not nearly enough. This is the Lord Jesus. We don't view him this way. We think of him as a hippie with advice. We're going to be honest most of the time. But this is the real Jesus. He is a king that is loving and kind and merciful and forgiving. And I would never take away Jesus' role as Savior. But he demands our worship. He demands it. He doesn't say, oh, that'd be awesome if you did, you know, whatever. He absolutely demands it. If we really understood Jesus to be this king, and we really understood that unbelief or even just ignoring his commands is rebellion against this king, then we would truly reconsider our attitude towards him. You know, this biblical view of King Jesus should have two effects. One effect on believers and another effect on unbelievers. If you're here and you're, and you're not a Christian, right, and I don't mean you said a prayer when you were seven years old or you go to church all the time, but if you're here and you are not actively putting your faith in Christ, not submitting to him daily and dying to yourself daily, if you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ, you should be terrified of this Jesus whom you currently reject. You should live day to day in fear. Because this king says you are his enemy. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 says, The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot and will not please him. It's his enemy. I'm paraphrasing. This king Jesus says you are his enemy. And he says that you will have to stand before him, guilty of your sin, guilty of rejecting him, and then face his wrath and judgment. You should not be able to breathe Whenever you think about that. And if you can shrug that off, you're not thinking about it rightly. The Bible says all of Jesus' enemies will be crushed by the weight of the wrath of God. If you're not a believer, you should fear justice. The Bible says that you sin, the penalty for sin, the justice from sin is that you would suffer in hell for eternity. apart from all of God's blessing, apart from all of His forgiveness and kindness and love, but that you would suffer the unmitigated anger and hatred of God, separated from anything good. You should be terrified of that. That's, it's real. Like We can't shrug this off. If you're not a believer, I plead with you to truly consider what it means to stand before a holy God with no defense whatsoever after a life of rejecting Jesus. Consider that. Think about that before you go to bed. Be afraid. But then I I plead with you, if you're not a Christian, to let that fear of God's wrath to come push you towards Jesus. This is the good news that you should be terrified, but that God sent Jesus to suffer the wrath that you deserve. That Jesus is standing before this Sanhedrin, getting ready to go to the cross so that you could stand before God being found in Christ. 
That Jesus on the cross would take your sin from you and pay for it and suffer hell on your behalf and then give you his righteousness to be judged by. So you could stand before God and say, I plead that your son has paid for what I did. And you would have a defense. Your only plea would be Christ, but that plea would get you acquitted. Let the fear of God drive you to the foot of the cross where justice was served and righteousness is given to you freely by faith. Believers, this view of King Jesus ought to make us passionate for Jesus, shouldn't it? It should make us passionate. Think about this. The King of kings, the God of all creation, suffered for our sin to save us. The rebels who have spat in his face daily and continue to rebel daily because we all continue to sin. Let that sink in for a moment. The King of Kings did this for you, and you didn't deserve it. Then we should think about this this sovereign king who has loved us in such a way has a kingdom that lasts forever, right? No end. Think about this. This might sound kind of strange. This should make us passionate for Jesus because that that tells me this. Everything else in this world is going away, right? Everything is going to pass under God's judgment. And the only thing that's going to stand is Jesus' kingdom and those who are inside his kingdom. That means that nothing else in our lives matter but him. That's it. Nothing is going to matter 10,000 years from now except for what brought Jesus glory. What honored him. What proved to the world that we found him to be the greatest thing that we have? That's the only thing that's going to matter. So any, I say that to say this, any kind of earthly pleasure that we might find in disobeying Jesus is really a waste of our time. It's not just sin. We should hate it for the fact that it's just sin and God hates sin and we love God enough to hate the same things that he hates. But on a secondary level, it's just a waste of your time. 10,000 years from now, it doesn't matter. So whatever you may experience, it's pleasurable for a season. It's perishing anyway. It's not going to bring glory to Christ. It's foolish. That is really freeing. That is really freeing. That means that all of the daily things that we consume ourselves with do not matter in the scope of eternity. The things that we think we would like to do that Jesus stands opposed to do don't matter. It's all coming to an end. And it will be very apparent to us someday whenever we stand before Jesus and see him seated at the right hand of God in power. And that means that we're free to live lives in obedience to Jesus. Lives that are going to echo to his praise and our reward throughout eternity. Now, if everything else is coming to an end except that, then Jesus is really, by telling us to submit, by demanding us to worship him, what he's really doing is he's actually inviting us into something that's actually worth doing. He's not out to snuff our pleasure or our joy. He's out to actually intensify it and give us eternal joy. Everything else is really not worth our time. So as he's calling us to submit to him as Lord and King, he's inviting us into real life. Life that actually matters. But I'll say this. I never want to come across as a legalist to say that salvation is dependent upon how well you can obey Jesus. Because that's not the case. For all of Jesus' demands to obey, we can't forget the motive underlying all of our obedience. Right? 
if, if the Bible says if works of the law, which means being a good person, obeying God, if works of the law could save anybody, Jesus would have never came. Right? It's one of my favorite arguments Paul gives in Galatians. If you could have been saved, apart from anything, just by being a good guy, Jesus Christ wouldn't have came and died. That would have been pointless, and Jesus didn't die for no reason. Right? We never try to obey Jesus in order to save ourselves. It's only by faith alone and Christ alone, by God's grace alone, every time. Period. But here's, what, here's our motive. I want to go back to, this, to the beginning with the passage. We talked about Jesus clearly condemning himself to die. He condemned himself to die. He incriminated himself by claiming to be the Son of God. Think about that. He incriminated himself. What's our motive? Jesus pulled the trigger on his own execution. They had nothing on him and would have had nothing on him. He had to incriminate himself. He pulled the trigger on his own execution by his own volition. No one took his life from him, but he laid it down, and he did that to save us from being crushed under God's wrath. He actually did that to save us from this warning in Psalm 110 that God is going to humble all of Jesus' enemies under his feet. Jesus incriminated himself in order to save us from his own warning. He did it to turn his enemies into his friends. He did it to make rebels into royal subjects of his kingdom. Here's our motive. Jesus was bold in his love for us. He incriminated himself. He sentenced himself to crucifixion and to suffer the wrath of God. It cost him everything. He was bold for our salvation. He was bold in his love for us. Our motive is gratitude. This is how we say thank you. We can't pay him back. He said, you incriminated yourself for me. You made me righteous when I didn't deserve it. Thank you. So as bold as he was for us, may we be bold for Jesus in our submission and passion for him as the loving, sovereign king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being in control. Thank you for sending your son to die. Christ, thank you for offering up your life. Thank you for turning us from enemies into friends by your grace. Holy Spirit, please convict us over what we would foolishly call little sins. Bring us to hate sin the same way that you hate it. Holy Spirit, just as you point us to Christ and you live or you exist to bring glory to Christ, please stir up in us a passion for the glory of Christ, that we would submit to his lordship, that we would take his commands seriously, that we would never dare to reject a command. God, make us into a holy people. Make us into a people who love you and love your commands because we know that your commands are really only for our benefit. We know that you've proven that 
in Christ going to the cross for us. So God, we thank you and we worship you and we praise you. Please make us a holy people that seeks to give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.